0: We will not let them silence your voices. We're not going to let it happen. Not going to let it happen. Thank you.
1: Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Litman. Like a torpedo ripping apart the hull of a ship, the riots President Trump incited in the Capitol have plunged his presidency into a sinking spiral, and it is suddenly unclear whether he can navigate the scant 12 days to the transfer of power that he has finally acknowledged. The melee by crazed domestic terrorists was the most harrowing event in the country since 9-11 and it seemed suddenly to lay bare the forces that have sustained President Trump over the course of his presidency. His most staunch followers in government were forced to renounce him, and he suddenly was transformed into his own worst nightmare. Isolated, ostracized loser. And he was forced by the prospect of criminal prosecution into a robotic speech repudiating his own rabid base, a stance he quickly reversed the following day. In the meantime, there's open talk of cutting his presidency short either by impeachment or the operation of the 25th Amendment. All of this part of a breathless and transformative 72 hours, beginning with the Georgia runoff elections that have an unmistakable charged feel of living history. Through it all, the virus reached another grim daily record of 4,000 deaths, and Dr. Fauci predicted it would rise for weeks to come, adding to the apocalyptic feel of the national maelstrom. It's almost too much to chronicle, analyze, and look ahead from these volatile days in 50 minutes. But if anyone can do it, it's the phenomenal panel we are fortunate to welcome on such a historic week. Beginning with Laura Jarrett. Laura is the anchor of CNN's Early Start with Christine Romans. Previously, she was a correspondent based in Washington covering the Department of Justice. Since joining CNN in 2016, Jarrett has covered a welter of significant legal stories involving the Trump administration. Laura, welcome back to Talking Feds.
2: Always great to be here, especially this week, Harry.
1: Second, George Conway, an attorney, a contributing columnist at the Washington Post, a co-founder of the Lincoln Project, and a founding member of Checks and Balances, a group of conservative and libertarian lawyers standing up for the rule of law. George, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Harry. And finally, Eric Swalwell, the U.S. Representative for California's 15th Congressional District. He serves on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, where he chairs the Intelligence Modernization and Readiness Subcommittee, also on the House Judiciary Committee and the House Democratic Steering and Policy Committee, of which he is co-chair. Congressman, it's our honor to welcome you to Talking Feds.
3: Uh, Thank you, Harry, and really an honor to be on, especially uh, with this panel.
1: All right. We could go a semester on these events, and in fact, universities will shortly, but there's so much to discuss. I want to jump right into the $64,000 question, so we give it its full due. Will Trump survive to the end of his term? Will either the 25th Amendment or impeachment, which seems to be gathering momentum, take him down before January 20th?
3: Well, I'm a a big believer, Harriet, in knowing your act and knowing your scene. And I'm in the House of Representatives, so I can't control what the vice president does or what the Senate does. Uh, But I do believe uh, that if the vice president does not put into motion the 25th Amendment, uh, the House should seek to impeach the president. I don't know what the Senate would do if they would convict, if they'd have a trial. Uh, but I know what we can do, and I think we should give the vice president that ultimatum. You act or we are ready to impeach. And I, I know that we are ready to impeach because the president is a danger not only to life and lives were lost because of his acts, but a danger to the ideals that this country was founded upon and ideals that can't be taken for granted anymore because we have now seen for the first time in our country's history uh, a, an unpeaceful, a violent uh, transfer of power.
1: Did I hear you right? You feel confident, Congressman, that the House is ready to vote out articles of impeachment.
3: Yes. Uh, However, uh, we believe the best thing the president could do for the country would be to resign. We don't think he'll do that. The next best thing would be for Vice President Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment. We don't think that he's going to do that. And if he's not, then it comes on to us. And, And impeaching the president, I believe, could lead to his removal. Certainly could be a deterrent for uh, further acts that he could take between now and the next 286 hours until Inauguration Day, but also would be holding accountable the president for his conduct and making our colleagues also be accountable in having to take that vote.
2: So it seems to me everyone is pretty much in agreement that he seems unlikely to resign or step aside, absent some deal that he cooks up with the vice president on a pardon. It seems unlikely that anyone thinks that the vice president and a majority of his cabinet members would vote to invoke the 25th Amendment. Here's what I don't understand. Why don't Republicans in the Senate, who clearly have aspirations for 2024, want to go along with impeachment if it's their best chance to get rid of a man who has hijacked their party who has lost the white house lost the senate lost americans faith in democracy in so many sad ways why isn't it in their best interest to band together 17 of them i think it would take right we could get to 67 why wouldn't they band together strategically to impeach him and then they avoid all of this all over again
4: well, that's a good question. I think it could be, and maybe I'm being too hopeful here, that they're waiting for the House to do what it's going to do, and then we'll see how it plays out in the Senate. There ought to be 17 sensible Republicans who, after being barricaded in the basement the other day, have I've ha- seen enough and had enough. And the point that you're making is even if the process took longer than 12 days, you could still continue the trial. right and prevent him and and enter a judgment of conviction in the Senate that says that he can never hold a federal office again, which would be a great benefit to the Republican Party and to the country. So that, that makes absolutely a great deal of sense. I don't know that they're ready to go out and say that now because there isn't really an impeachment that's happening. It hasn't happened yet, but they'll be forced to reveal themselves soon enough, because I agree with both of you that Pence doesn't have the testicular fortitude to do what needs to be done here. He doesn't have the moral backbone. Trump isn't certainly going to resign. Although the 25th Amendment thing actually would be absolutely perfect, because the way it works is that Congress gets to sit on it for three weeks to decide whether or not to affirm the decision of the cabinet, and Congress would never have to do anything. Pence would be acting mm. president through that period. I, thought, I always thought over the last couple of days that the best solution would be to have both tracks go simultaneously. The 25th Amendment, in order to remove him from power immediately, and then the impeachment and a judgment that says he can never hold federal office, again, that really covers all the bases. It eliminates the damage he could do To the country over the next 12 days and and in four years.
1: Let me follow that through. First, that point that George made in passing, it's a Conway point that I had missed till he made it, and it's important. We think normally that the 25th Amendment is the fourth section, which is what we're talking about, which hasn't been invoked, which is triggered when a majority of the cabinet, including the vice president, vote that he is unable to discharge the duties of office
4: here's how it works first you get the majority of the cabinet there's a debate as to whether that includes acting officials but let's set that aside you get the vice president and majority of cabinet certifying that the president is unable to perform his duties at that point the president is taken out of commission for four days the vice president becomes acting president. There's a little ambiguity in the language, but when you go back to the legislative history, and think about it. It makes sense that there's a four-day period where the president can say that he wants his power back, but he doesn't get it back until the fourth day. He can't just take it, his power back and the fire of all the members of the cabinet. So if within that close four days, the vice president and the cabinet reaffirm their decision that the president is still unable, notwithstanding the president objecting, Then the whole thing gets kicked to Congress. Congress has to assemble within 48 hours, I think it is. They have 21 days to say yay or nay as to whether they agree with the cabinet.
1: And during those 21 days, Vice President Pence remains the acting president.
4: Correct. And during those days, Joe Biden will be sworn in. And the point is that you could basically, what you could do is the House could basically not hold a vote during those 10 or probably down to eight days now, the way the timing would work, and not hold a vote one way or the other. would Nobody would have to do anything under the Constitution. On the 20th Amendment, I think it is, the president's term of office ends at noon on January 20th, full stop.
1: And I think it was that realization that made him come out and think, I have to say something. But I want to return to Laura's point for a moment, because first, it seems so compelling to me, and case one and two for it are Cruz and Hawley. We know Cruz, for starters, called him a flaming liar in 2016 and somehow felt cravenly forced to go along and become a big Trumpist when he must loathe it. And why wouldn't you want to remove that force from the scene? But if it happens, you're right. The sanction, the shame, the scarlet letter occurs. But can't Mitch McConnell just easily sit on it and not have all the members of the Senate forced to take a vote and possibly actually vote against Trump, can't McConnell, in
3: effect, smother it? My interpretation would be that Cruz and Hawley, they recognize it would be short-sighted to take Trump out of contention for 2024 because they're all in now. And the people that they need would turn against them so fast if they were seen as going against Trump. I mean, they've got this perverted idea that those folks would be their voters. They're they're never going to be Cruz and Hawley voters. But they also probably looked at Twitter today and saw the way that Lindsey Graham was treated by those voters at Reagan Airport, when Graham couldn't even walk without six Capitol police officers surrounding him as he was being shouted down as a traitor. So, you know, those folks are loyal to Donald Trump. They're never going to be loyal to Hawley and Cruz. And I think they at least recognize Uh, That they would be scorned and pay a a steep price by those folks. So I I don't think they would do it, but I do think if you start looking at Romney, Murkowski, Collins, Sass, you have a pathway. 17 is going to be hard. And I I don't think anyone in our caucus is naive to think that we could get 17, but we also don't think it's our responsibility at this point to make a decision based on whether you could get 17. It would be our responsibility to put together a, a team that could make the case in a trial to 17 members. But at this point, I think we need to do what's right and, and hope that others follow.
1: Just to be clear, I was trying to make two separate points. One, echoing Laura, that it, I don't understand why it wouldn't be in the interest, given including what you said, Congressman, of the crews and Hollies of the world, to disable him from at least the threat of coming back into the political fray. But I also wanted to serve up, would, in fact, they and anybody be forced to a vote of conscience or pragmatics, because would not Mitch McConnell in his last days as majority leader simply prevent the articles from moving forward?
4: Well, he certainly could do that. On the other hand, he seems to have had enough with the president. And Mm -hmm. maybe he, and this is, again, probably overly hopeful, could take the view that this is going to be a vote of conscience as well. If you will. But the other point is, though, that he's not going to be majority leader for anything more than what, 10 days? And we can still get out of this if. Senator Schumer is willing to pursue it, and I suspect he might be, an up or down vote on whether or not he should be qualified to hold public office again. And I think that is something that, at a minimum, matters. The Senate rules do require that an immediate thing. They have to immediately proceed, and Representative Swalwell can speak to this because he knows the rules, they have to proceed to a trial under the Senate rules. There is an obligation to immediately convene a trial as soon as those impeachment articles are walked over. Now, they can just start debating whether what the rule will be for the trial and so on and stall. But I don't know that they would want this to drag on. It's
3: unclear when McConnell will cede power to Schumer. You now have, as of the last hour, both Georgia senators have conceded Theoretically, McConnell could do that now if he wanted to swear in an uncontested election at this point, yeah. swear in the victors of, of that election. And then it becomes Schumer's the one who makes the decisions. And, and I don't know McConnell, but perhaps he doesn't want to be in the you know, position of having to make decisions about that. And this could be Schumer's deal. But you know, there's a lot of moving parts right now. But I, I know on our side, we're getting ready for impeachment if that's what we have to do.
1: And po- or let me turn to you or, or George, because politically and legally, do we feel there's no it's uncontroversial that you could actually hold the trial after Trump is out of office?
4: Look, I mean, it, I don't know that it's uncontroversial. I think there is a degree of uncertainty to it. There was a trial. Of, I think it was President Grant's secretary of war, William Belknap, who was impeached while in office. He then resigned, but the Senate proceeded to a trial. He was acquitted. And, you know, there's a question as to how many votes for the acquittal were on the basis of the Senate no longer having jurisdiction because Belknap was out of office or on the evidence, but they held a trial. And there was a, a an article published in Lawfare this morning that indicated that there is there is academic support for the proposition that you can hold a trial for an official who resigns during the impeachment process.
2: And the other wild card here that we just haven't talked about, it's, it's, it's not a legal issue, but it's a political one, is what about Joe Biden? He doesn't seem to have any political appetite for impeachment right now. Now that, that- Calculus may change on a host of things, but at least that's sort of the signals that he's sending to people that the press is talking to as sources, at least telegraphing where his head is about it right now.
4: He actually just said something about it right now. I just saw on Twitter, but he spoke to the press or gave a speech, and he just said he thought Trump was the most incompetent president in the history and the worst president, I think, in history. But his focus is on COVID. Basically, Congress needs to do what it has to do. He's just leaving it up to Congress, and that's perfectly—I think that's the pitch-perfect political response.
3: I agree, and he's an institutionalist, too. He's also a former member of Congress, and so he's not going to want to tell Congress what their duty is. Right.
4: He's going to do what he's going to do. They need to do what they need, because it's up to them. We have a great
1: opportunity here. Watching it, I think I felt, maybe a lot of people felt, on the one hand, this was vicious, harrowing, dangerous, unbelievable— On the other hand, they seemed like kind of a bunch of lowlifes. And of course, the Capitol was going to get cleared. Congressman Swalwell was inside. And I just wonder how it felt to you. How did you feel about it? And how do you think your colleagues felt about it actually being there and hearing from marshals head down, don't
3: come up till we tell you? It was unsettling, mostly because it was a sacred place that had been breached. And I think we think of the Capitol as a symbol, and not only on that day, it wasn't only a symbol of freedom, it it was a practical location where we were performing our duties to certify the electoral college. And to be in retreat is just not a place any lawmaker in a republic would wanna be. You think of the floor as, again, it's a symbol, but it's also supposed to be fortified because of what it represents. And, And To hear the banging on the door and to see Capitol Hill police officers. Did you know right away who it was yeah, so we were getting alerts on our phone, and we were watching on Twitter the different streams outside, and so you knew just the different points that had been breached, that they were going to make their way to the second floor, where the House floor and the Senate floor are, and then you started hearing this, this the screaming and the shouting and the, the banging on the door, and you saw the Speaker was escorted out pretty quickly, and then we were told to take out the gas masks in case tear gas came out. And our, our veterans really rose to the occasion. Our war veterans were helping yeah. members who didn't know how to put on a gas mask. And why would you know how to put on a, a gas mask? And but the most harrowing part, Harry, was when the, the chaplain walked up to the microphone, uninvited, unsolicited, but recognizing the moment. And she said a prayer during the chaos of the shouting yeah. and the flashbangs and the putting on of the gas masks. And then pretty soon, you know, we we were out of there. But again, for me, the most unsettling part, not knowing whether I was safe or not, because you're in a a chamber where you don't really have many windows and you can't see what's outside. uh, But the most unsettling part was that for the first time since the War of 1812, the Capitol was invaded. And and to just feel like a safe space was not safe, uh, that I don't think I'll ever get over. And I don't think we should ever get over. And as we think about what are we supposed to do next, I, I think you have to keep that perspective.
1: I mean, that seems really right to me, and I'm jumping ahead a little. I think we can double back here. But you're the Department of Justice under Merrick Garland. You obviously have to deal very harshly uh, with the people who storm the Capitol, some of whom have explosive devices, which give rise to possible terrorism charges. We learned this morning of the death basically by, you know, mauling of one of the officers. And we saw footage of an officer being assaulted. You have to deal harshly with them. And how can you do that, even leaving the political context aside, while ignoring Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, Donald Trump Jr.? Even if there's no appetite by Biden, it seems unjust to go after all these miscreants, but take a pass on the main fomenters.
4: No, it's crazy. I mean, the Justice Department apparently issued a statement this afternoon saying that they weren't looking at speakers at the rally, which is insane. Now, I I, I get it. It's probably difficult to prove incitement under the Riot Act from a speech unless you say, go blow them up or something like that. It's probably difficult. But I don't know how you can make that assessment and say that we are not prosecuting anybody who who gave a speech without actually conducting an investigation. There are so many questions so many questions about how this happened. It wasn't just that Trump said, hey, go march on the hill, we're never gonna give up, and said all sorts of incendiary things in that manner. He's been saying incendiary things for a while. He said, you be there on January 6th, he said in a tweet a couple of weeks ago. It's going to be wild. Well, what did he mean by that? How did he get to come to the rally? Who did he talk to? Who arranged the rally? What was his understanding of what the rally was for? What was his reaction when he saw on TV that this violence was going on? People apparently at the White House say he was gleeful about it. That goes to his intent. There needs to be an investigation of everything that happened leading up to this, this atrocious, atrocious, appalling fiasco. And that includes what he said and what he did
2: to george's other point it seems too narrow to just look at what he said at a speech on wednesday it's what he's been saying for two months since he lost fomenting this level of misinformation and trust and not just since he lost really for the last five years right this is somebody who has grounded himself in helping cultivate a mistrust of institutions he has exploited an anger at the GOP, at institutions, at the Constitution itself, and exploited that to his own end. So it seems way too narrow to just look at what happened on Wednesday. And I understand from a prosecutor's perspective, you got have, have to have a causal line here. But that's part of why maybe this isn't the best discussion for a pure prosecution. It's really a discussion about whether this person is fit for office.
1: I would say it's both. I would return to George's point as a former U.S. attorney. You have to investigate. We're not going to take back our government by weakness, says Trump to the people that day. He says, "Let's go down to the Capitol." You have a very hard First Amendment issue, actually, about as as George points out, having to do with incitement of imminent lawless action. But he doesn't have to. He certainly doesn't have to say, "Go breach the Capitol, stabs." He just, if he whips them up and knows that imminently that's where they're going, it's culpability, and you got to look into it.
4: Right. The state of mind. Did he come across any of those individuals who were wearing MAGA Civil War t-shirts? Did the president see that? Is there evidence that the president saw that? There are all sorts of questions that need to be asked here. I mean, I saw some of these posts on Parlor a few days before January 6th. And I tweeted out something saying, you know, I think we're underestimating the potential for violence here. And sadly, yeah, (laughs) that's the way it turned out. This, This stuff was out there. How much did he know? He talks to lots of crazy people, this guy, in the middle of the night. And now he's talking to crazier people because the same people don't want to talk to him, The people who work for him. They're avoiding him. So he picks up the cell phone in the middle of the night. Who is he talking to? Somebody as nutty as Roger Stone? Could it be one of the organizers? And what did they talk about? What did he know? And the three
1: of us are not even privy to all this material on the so-called dark web. But we've seen some of it quoted, and, and he is certainly aware of it, and it is some virulent, revolutionary stuff.
2: They weren't hiding this. These are individuals who are more than willing to talk to reporters even after they've committed crimes, even after they've been caught on camera. They are more than willing to talk to reporters and vow to come back. They they are posting about how they are coming back. At least their intention is to come back on January 20th. That's why it's just such a catastrophic failure for the Capitol Police to say, Well, we didn't know, or not to to not be prepared for this. Anybody who has an internet connection could have seen this.
4: To go back to your other point, Laura, he's been cultivating this for years. You know, he's a narcissistic psychopath, and what he believes is only himself, like the great authoritarians of history. No allegiance. He hugs the flag, but he really only needs allegiance to himself. That's why he trashes all of the institutions of government, including the ones that he controls. To his followers, and he cultivates this, only he speaks the truth and only he speaks for the country. And so when he says that they're up there on Capitol Hill Stealing your country, in essence, stealing our democracy, even though he doesn't believe in democracy, and stealing an election, he is fomenting them. He is inciting violence. If your country is being taken away, it was called the Save America rally. If your democracy is taken away and your vote is being taken away because he's telling you and you believe that, yes, then violence is the answer. He was inciting them. If you put it all in context... Was inciting
1: them. Look, he says all those things and then says, We're never going to take back our country with weakness. That's some pretty strong evidence for a prosecutor.
3: The president has created a, a permissive environment where uh, because he believes that he has shattered these norms and he doesn't have to follow the rules, it's projected onto his followers who so brazenly post online and do news interviews, proof of you know their lawlessness. And, and even my, my colleagues, y- you have colleagues now who think they can walk around Washington, D.C. with their firearms, even though it's not allowed in Washington, D.C. One of my colleagues, th- this may have been lost in all this because of what happened after, but as the protesters were making their way to the Capitol, the the colleague who has said that she's not going to follow the D.C. firearm rules, she started her first speech on the floor as a member of the House of Representatives by making a joke about a duel and that we're lucky that she's not challenging any of us to a duel. So, yeah, the the threats of violence were there. And, And also, we should name names. Mo Brooks at that rally said that we must take names and kick ass. And then within hours,
4: lives were lost. And the president attacked Mike Pence at that rally. Nest.
3: As did they. I mean,
4: they called for him to be executed. To be executed. Correct. Because yeah. the leader said, Pence isn't following my instructions. And all the evidence, of incitement. As you know, Harry, as a former prosecutor, everything is contextual. And these words came in a certain context, which is is Laura's point, and it's absolutely right. Four years of context. And Congressman Swalwell, absolutely right. This is because these people are so taken in by this, they think he is the source of any justification to violate any law. And that's his appeal. He thumbs his nose at the law. And so they think they can do it too.
1: All right. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the most critical issues in the news. Today, we present a sidebar on perhaps the most burning legal issue out there and one that we know is under discussion in the White House, namely, can the president pardon himself? And our reader is a truly great one that takes me back to my first working days post-college, doing any odd or dirty job anybody told me to do in exchange for the opportunity of witnessing the creation of some of the greatest films of the day. So to explain the very tricky self-pardon question, I am thrilled to present actor, producer, director,
0: Robert De Niro. Can President Trump pardon himself? The country is primed for President Trump to execute a raft of pardons before leaving office. The ultimate would be an attempted preemptive pardon of himself. Does the Constitution give him the power to do it? The short answer is that it's an open question because no court has ever had occasion to rule on the question, and no court will have occasion to do so in Trump's case unless, one, he pardons himself, and two, the DOJ decides to pursue charges against him for a crime covered by that pardon. Given President elect Biden's ambitious agenda and the certain turmoil and strife that a prosecution of Trump would entail, that's not very likely. If it does come up, however, the better view is that the Constitution does not permit the president to pardon himself. Still, there are prominent commentators who believe that the president may pardon himself. They point to the broad formulation of the power in Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, which reads, The president shall have the power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States except in cases of impeachment. People on the other side of the debate, however, note that if the president could pardon himself, he would effectively be above the law, which runs afoul of a deep principle of American law that no person can be the judge in his or her own cause. A self-pardon indisputably puts the president above the law, a result that would be anathema to the framers and to our legal tradition. A self-pardon would also conflict with the president's core responsibility under the Constitution to, quote, take care the laws, be faithfully executed, unquote. If the president commits a crime but can escape responsibility by his own fiat, he has subverted the faithful execution of the law. So the best answer is that a self-pardon is unconstitutional, but we are unlikely to see a Supreme Court case addressing the issue. For Talking Feds, I'm Robert De Niro.
1: Thank you very much, Robert De Niro, for explaining whether Trump can pardon himself. Among his innumerable professional achievements, De Niro co-founded Tribeca Productions with Jane Rosenthal in 1989 and later co-founded the Tribeca Film Festival in 2002. The 20th anniversary of that festival will be held June 9th through 20th of this year.
2: How many times have you been delayed or detoured around roadway construction in Southern California and wondered, what's going on? How long will this take to complete? And why is it even necessary? Now you can find out. Join John Hakel, Executive Director of Rebuild SoCal Partnership, on his organization's new podcast, The Rebuild SoCal Zone, as he interviews industry titans and others that will help answer these types of questions. Listeners can get insight about vital infrastructure projects throughout the region and other information on SoCal's only infrastructure-focused podcast. This thought-provoking podcast will cover current and upcoming projects, improvements being made, how they impact communities, and also learn how this essential work is creating jobs and will help grow the local economy. The Rebuild SoCal Zone podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Subscribe and listen.
1: Harry here with a quick word about our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a counseling service that can assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. It's not self-help, it's professional counseling, and it's convenient, accessible, and affordable. And as a listener of Talking Feds, you can try BetterHelp for a 10% discount by going to BetterHelp.com slash TalkingFeds. That's BetterHelp.com slash TalkingFeds. There is a sense, isn't there, that this episode has prompted a kind of return of traditional Suburban Republicanism, that somehow McConnell and others have reconnected with their civic roots and are really denouncing not just the episode, but maybe Trumpism itself. I wonder just whether you think, even leaving aside the 25th Amendment impeachment criminal charges, if there's some way in which he has really gone too far. And as a practical matter, he will lose some of the 74 million, lose some of the lapdogs in the Senate and House and become a weaker uh, former president as a result of this episode.
2: I think people voted for him for a whole host of reasons. And so I don't want to say that all the 74 million people who voted for him are of the ilk that were at that rally. But you listen to the people who did show up, and I think it is a pretty blunt view of at least a wide section of them. A number of people who said, I have to take my country back. The question is, take your country back from whom, right? They walked in there with no fear of the police with no fear about being there as if they had the right to be there. It is the height of white privilege to watch what happened on Wednesday and just the brazenness with which they showed up. And then I'm not even talking about the selfies with the police and all of the issues with why some of them were let in on some parts of the Capitol, even putting all that aside, just the mindset that it takes to walk in there, I think you can ignore, even if it doesn't speak for all of the people who voted for him. I think it was an amazing, illustrative example of at least A portion of them and what their mindset is. And to your point, Harry, about whether this is a return to traditionalism, maybe, but I'm not sure it's for the right reasons if it only had to happen after a violent, deadly attack on the nation's capital. The idea that it had to take an insurrection, an attempted coup for people to see what was happening in front of their eyes for so many years. We're in a really scary place if that's true, but we might be right to the extent that it did have to happen in the people's house. It had to happen to Mitch McConnell to have people hiding in bunkers in safe locations for them to see we got a real problem here.
3: Laura, also, it was pretty disturbing to read yesterday one account that was shared with me from a a metropolitan uh, police officer, D.C. police, who was called to assist. He said that a number of off-duty police and military officers were flashing their badges as they were ransacking the Capitol. Yes. And this was a black officer who described exactly what you were describing, which was, you know, he felt like they carried this privilege with them that it's cool that we're doing it. Don't worry about us. It's it's not a threat. And my Black colleagues have rightfully and righteously shared concerns that the Capitol on Wednesday did not look anything like it did during the summer for the Black Lives Matter protests, that it was fortified then, and it it didn't look that way. So there are real questions about why these quote-unquote protesters were not treated the way that they should have been.
4: And that's especially true, given that the BLM protests were much more spontaneous than Mm -hmm. this, which was planned, planned for weeks. And it's just inexplicable That there wasn't the fencing that's apparently out there today, that that fencing wasn't around for the month of January through the inauguration. It's just crazy. And to go back to the more general point about how it affects the public, not all Republicans buy into this. As Laura says, people voted for Trump for a number of reasons. They voted against what they thought might be higher taxes. They may have even voted because they perceived the need for law and order. Well, those people don't like riots and they don't like this. And I don't think there's going to be any doubt in anybody who's paying attention in their minds who caused this. And I think this is just devastating for the Republican Party. And that's why you're seeing so much alarm and so much division, not just because they had to hide in the basement among these members of Congress on the Republican side.
1: All right, so you're generally agreeing if I hear you right George that in fact this is going to erode his particular power and the thrall with which he's held the whole party.
4: Well, for no, four years. no, no, not I mean the whole party. No. Well, I mean it's not going to erode the thrall of some percentage of people. Yeah. I do think it is opening up a fissure that has been hidden for quite some time. I mean, I think something happened this week. You know, there are tipping points in life and in science. Bridges, for example, all of a sudden the bridge looks like it's okay one day, although its structural integrity was never all that sound. And all of a sudden, in a blink of an eye, it crashes. It collapses. Market bubbles. You know, the P-E ratios don't make any sense. Why does the market keep going up? And then all of a sudden, somebody realizes and sells and it triggers a whole collapse. The Berlin Wall, who knew two weeks before... It collapsed, that it was going to collapse, it was going to be the end of the Iron Curtain, and then within a, you know, 15 months, the Soviet Union would be gone, or 20, I don't know what the number was. There are tipping points in the world, and I'm hoping, even though it came two years, three years too late, that this was a tipping point for the Republican Party.
1: Yeah, it's almost like a physics of politics. Does either of you have thoughts about whether this will, as a practical matter, just leaving everything else aside, serve to weaken him? I was really struck, even that robotic speech where he seemed like a hostage, giving his denunciation of the writers. It ended with you know this sort of chilling note of "we're just beginning," and and it seemed to certainly communicate a resolve to be a big time leader and influence going forward. But do you think that the nature of his base is such that really this will only have a marginal effect on his powers and people who want to be serious candidates in 2024 will still have to go and kiss his ring or is this episode a kind of tipping point, as George puts it, into the phenomenon of Trump and Trumpism?
2: I think a lot depends on what happens in the next 12 days, right? It was Van Jones on our air on Wednesday said so well, was Wednesday the beginning of something or the end of something? Because if that was just a preview, if that was, in fact, just a dry run, we don't know how this story ends yet for him. And just one one thing we haven't talked about yet, but I just find so chilling, is that the president of the United States set the stage, fomented, incited, whatever word we want to put on it, really a breach of national security. As the congressman so well knows, members are reporting their laptops are stolen. These people were sitting at the desk of members of Congress rifling through their papers, Think of just the enormous security implications of that. This is starting at the top (laughs) of the president of the United States. That's just a chilling thought that the Russians could have been in that crowd, rushed in with the pro-Trump rally mob disguised as someone among the crowd and now be in possession of our national security secrets. It's just, that is a stunning episode.
3: Absolutely, Laura. And, and some of the after action conversations we've been having as a caucus have centered around this that, yes, we have, as I said, 280 some odd hours between now and inauguration, and, and we have to protect the country during what will be some very long days. Uh, but the long term consequences of the Capitol being breached is, is that every enemy of America was watching that, whether it's a domestic enemy or a foreign enemy.
2: Yes.
1: And not just the enemies, every person right around the world, I think, kind of guffawing with the sorts of pictures that you associate more with post-Soviet Russia or whatever.
2: Yeah, but you don't think about the Capitol being a soft target. I mean, for God's sakes, you don't think about you being able to just waltz in or, in their case, break down the doors into Nancy Pelosi's office. That's horrifying.
1: One more sort of quick question about this all. I mean, what a tumultuous week. It's been like a chain reaction of nuclear effects I do want to go back to the Georgia elections on Tuesday and just ask how much of this all was a kind of intense domino effect from the results in Georgia, and maybe ask along with that what sort of opportunities, but also what worries does the capture of the Senate by the Democrats provide for the incoming administration?
4: Well, it was just an accident that January 5th and January 6th, there was a runoff on one day, and then... vote to count the Electoral College vote occurred the next day. But certainly you have to think that because Republicans know that Donald Trump lost that election for them or contributed to the loss, in fact, he was privately apparently saying that he wanted them to lose, which makes perfect sense because it makes his loss seem like it wasn't about him. That has to figure out into the calculus of the Republicans in Congress and how much more of Donald Trump they really want to see
2: even if folks in that crowd weren't reacting to the results in georgia directly they still serve as a backdrop to the extent that we haven't fully come to grips with racism in this country. We haven't fully come to grips with the way in which demographic changes allowed for the results in Georgia to the extent that there is this generalized white grievance among some voters. Even if it's not about that election, even if it's not about the November election, there is an anger there that was so palpable on Wednesday that they are intertwined, to, I think, in that way, Harry.
1: But if you posit that the engine of Trumpism in some way is the not just anger, but the sort of insecurity, especially of non-college educated white males that elites and people of color are taking their country away from them. I don't know how carefully they were following, but now that both branches of the Congress and the White House will be controlled by the Democrats, is it in fact, does it make it all look like an interregnum? And now they are back to being, in their view, under the thumb of the
3: nasty people of color loving elites. Harry, a conversation we've been having with our colleagues is... Are we a country where people would be asked to choose between their whiteness or our democracy? Is that the point where we are right now? And, and I, I hate to say that, but. You look at what happened on Wednesday, and again, just going back to the privilege that so many of them carried, believing they could trample over democracy, carry into the Capitol the Confederate flag and wave it right outside the floor of the House of Representatives. I think these are some of the questions we're going to have to grapple with. But this is not going away. This is an ongoing threat. We can't talk about this in the past tense. Our democracy is, as we convene here for this, under assault. These individuals were harassing my colleagues on their plane rides home. One of them shared that, her flight this morning required security because she was being harassed on the flight by these maskless Trump rioters. So this is ongoing, and and they have plans and intentions to do this very same thing on January 20. We've already seen that on Parler. So this is an ongoing assault, first time ever that we've not had, as I said, a peaceful transition of power. And my focus right now is just what we do over the next 12 days.
1: All right. There's an end, at least for now. We just have a couple of minutes left for our final feature of five words or fewer, where we take a question from a listener and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. Today's question comes from Joanna Davis, who asks, will the charging decisions of the acting U.S. attorney in Washington tie the hands of the incoming administration? Just a sentence or two for context, we've seen the acting U.S. attorney, who is a bar installation after there was trouble in that office, but nevertheless, a professional, his reputation is strong, coming out and saying what anybody would have to say about how they'll investigate everyone. But as a practical matter, can that really make the decisions for the Merrick Garland Department of Justice? So five words or fewer, will his decisions tie the hands of the incoming administration?
4: No, just follow the law. Okay, can I do just one word? No.
2: I would say maybe, but don't bank on it.
4: Okay,
1: and I have to say, as a foreign prosecutor, I'm with George. No. Thank you very much to Congressman Eric Swalwell, George Conway, and Laura Jarrett. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts, and please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where we post full episode transcripts. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett and Rebecca Low Patton. Our editor is Justin Wright. David Lieberman and Rosie Don Griffin are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Matt McCardle. Our consulting producer is Andrea Carla Michaels. Thanks very much to Bob De Niro for analyzing the vexing question of whether President Trump can pardon himself. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Lintman. See you next time.